0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In some ways, the cases of the faithless electors may have been the most entertaining of Supreme Court cases this term. It started oral arguments with Justice Clarence Thomas wondering if an elector could vote for a character from The Lord of the Rings.
1: The elector who had promised to vote for the winning candidate could suddenly say, you know, uh, I'm going to vote for Frodo Baggins, and that's, I really like Frodo Baggins.
0: And ended with a decision by Justice Elena Kagan that told the history of presidential electors.
2: Alexander Hamilton. My name
0: is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait, just including references to the Broadway hit Hamilton and the TV show Veep. The court ruled that states can require members of the Electoral College to vote for the presidential candidate who won the statewide balloting. Although a faithless elector has never affected the outcome of a presidential election, the unanimous decisions are important in giving a measure of predictability to our nation's complex election system. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Braffald, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, does this decision seem to take care of the concerns that were raised by the justices during the oral arguments?
2: I think the justices, many of them were concerned about potential chaos if the states could not make sure that electors would cast the votes that they were elected to cast. There is the constitutional argument that the original intent of the framers was to actually have the electors use their judgment. But our practice since almost the beginning of the country has been for the electors to vote the positions that they were chosen to take. Presidential elections are, in practice, popular elections, even if we still have to use the electoral college. I think the justices were showing that it made sense to have the states be able to require the electors to cast the votes that they were chosen to cast.
0: In the majority opinion, how did Elena Kagan frame it? The Constitution doesn't address this. Did she do a constitutional argument? Did she do a practical argument?
2: She really did a combination of classical text and history, text history and practice. I mean, the text doesn't really address this. The text basically directs the state to select the electors. It doesn't say anything about any rights that the electors might have. And then she traces the history, which shows that really from maybe from 1796 on, it was expected that electors would vote for the person they were chosen to vote for. So I think she basically said that this was something that the states were free to do. There were no counter precedents. There was one Supreme Court president from the 1950s, which upheld the authority of states to require the electors to take pledges, that they would vote the way they were chosen to vote, but there was no punishment in that case. So I think she basically had text practice or history, and maybe a sense of, in effect, we have reached the stage now where the electors are really a part of the process. A popular election.
0: And in her opinion, she referenced the HBO show Veep as well as the Broadway musical Hamilton.
2: Correct, yes. So she seemed
0: to have a little bit of fun
2: with it. Right. She is a very lively writer. She often puts in colloquial things, popular things. She is a lively and readable writer. I sometimes find myself laughing out loud Uh, When I read something of her, she had an opinion recently dealing with the power of Congress to limit the president to just cause removal, which the court struck down in that case. And one of the arguments in the majority in that case was that this had never been done before or it was very rarely done before. And she said that really shouldn't matter. The necessary and proper clause is not the rinse and repeat clause. And she adds a lot of fairly um, colloquial, casual, funny things.
0: There are more faithless electors in the 2016 presidential election than ever before in history, but how much impact will this decision really have going forward?
2: As you point out, I mean, faithless electors are very rare. If you go back for the preceding century, I was looking at this, between 1916 and 2012, there were exactly nine faithless electors, and that was in 25 elections, and there were 500 electors or more in every one of those elections. So it's a very rare thing. There were a sizable number in 2016, and I think it reflected a lot of the discontent in the country with the choices that people had. It's highly unlikely we were going to have a constitutional crisis due to faithless electors, but I think the, the value is more symbolic than anything else, but it does kind of confirm the idea that this is a popular election. In Italy, it's a popular election by state, which is why we can still get a gap between the national popular vote and the national electoral vote. The president is popular elected on a state-by-state basis. But it is a kind of a confirmation that whatever the intentions of the framers were in 1787, we have moved in a more small-D democratic direction.
0: Advocates for allowing faithless electors to so-called go rogue said it would be a backdoor way for states to add qualifications for presidential candidates such as voting only for those who release
2: taxes, did that come up in the opinions? Justice Kagan takes the position that since the states have the power to write the rules for the selection of the electors, they can also impose conditions. But then she drops the footnote and says what the states can't do is impose conditions that would violate another constitutional norm or adding a new qualification to be president. You could read that as aimed at knocking out the idea that the states could impose the new requirement to disclose as a qualification for being president.
0: That's Richard Pervalt of Columbia Law School. The Supreme Court delivered a ruling in a criminal case that could have vast implications for Oklahoma's criminal and civil jurisdiction, as well as tribal sovereignty in the eastern half of that state. Justice Neil Gorsuch joined the court's four liberal appointees in a 5-4 to decision that found that Congress had granted the Creek Nation a reservation and the United States had to keep its promises. In the majority opinion, Gorsuch wrote... Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Legal Editor. This case is about Indian land in Oklahoma, but it's actually a criminal case. Explain how it went from criminal case to this broader case.
1: So the case involves a man named Jim C. McGirt, and he's a member of the Seminole Nation. So he was convicted of some very serious crimes and was serving a a life sentence in state prison. However, he raised an argument on appeal saying that because he is an Indian and his crime took place in what he said was Indian country, that the state actually didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute him because jurisdiction for such a prosecution would only fall to the federal government under federal law. And so that wound up raising the question in turn of whether where he actually committed the crime was, in fact, quote unquote, Indian country. And so that's what brought into question the status of the Creek Reservation, which is where McGirt committed his crime, and the question of whether the Creek Reservation still exists today from its 19th century treaty origins.
0: So the state said it wasn't legally a reservation in the first place, and even if it was, Congress has since taken away that status. Explain the state's argument.
1: Right. There's this threshold question of whether there's even a reservation in the first place, and then if there was, whether Congress has done something called disestablishing the reservation. It's a strict test where if a state argues that a reservation has been essentially undone, there needs to be a clear statement from Congress showing that that happened. And so what happened in this case, the majority opinion written by Justice Gorsuch said, in the first instance, it was obvious that the Creek Reservation was a reservation in the first place. It even used the the word reservation in the treaty to discuss it. And Gorsuch wound up going to say in the opinion that Congress has not clearly disestablished the reservation, even if the government did, at various points in history, actually want the reservation to be disestablished. The, the government was never actually successful in doing that. And so technically, as a legal matter, the reservation still exists today.
0: Gorsuch said the government's dire warnings are just that and not a license for us to disregard the law. So... Tell us about the government's dire warnings.
1: So the government was warning that if McGirt's argument is correct, that him and a bunch of other people who are convicted under state law in state court will wind up having their convictions overturned. And so there were big consequences as far as the state was concerned when it comes to criminal law. And then even beyond that, if it turns out that the Creek Reservation persists today, and if in turn other reservations in the eastern half of the state also are still reservations, then that could have the consequences for civil, regulatory, and tax enforcement as well. So the state's argument even went beyond the criminal sphere and into civil, tax, and regulatory as well.
0: During the argument, the justices were asking questions about how this would affect adoptions and business disputes. Do we know how this will affect
2: that?
1: The ruling here focused on the criminal side, There was actually an interesting statement that came out after the ruling, a joint statement from the state and also the tribes in the eastern half of the state, talking about how they were going to work together going forward to sort out jurisdictional issues and enforce public safety. So it was an interesting thing, not the sort of thing that you see every day in terms of two sides of a dispute coming out with a joint statement together after the case. Of course, the case was McGirt against Oklahoma, but you had the Creek Nation, Uh, and other tribal interests supporting McGirt uh, at the high court. So this statement that came out after was from Oklahoma and then the tribes. Uh, Of course, McGirt and other state defendants who were convicted in state court could be retried in federal court, which was an argument that McGirt and his supporters were making as to why there wouldn't really be this wide disruption that the state was claiming because people could just be retried in a different court. It's not like they would just be let loose on the streets forever.
0: There might be statute of limitations problems with some
1: of the cases, right? There could definitely be procedural obstacles to retrying some defendants, and there could be practical hurdles too. You know, if it's a case from very long ago, witnesses could be dead, their memories could be faded. And so even if legally a lot of these defendants could simply be retried as a practical matter, that won't necessarily be the case. Uh, But the point in Gorsuch's opinion was, Those consequences, be them as they may, that's really not the issue in the case. The issue is the discrete legal question of whether the reservation has been disestablished. And the answer to that question, uh, the majority said, uh, was clearly no. The reservation still stands today.
0: So does this mean that any Indian who was convicted by the state of an offense on reservation land can now apply to have that reversed?
1: So as always happens in these cases, there may be further litigation testing the limits of it, but there are certainly going to be challenges brought, and so that's something that the state is worried about. And even the defense conceded that there certainly could be convictions that are challenged. They argue over really how many are in question, and even though the state was warning that a lot of convictions are going to wind up being overturned, the state very may well wind up challenging those convictions being overturned uh, now that the litigation is on sort of a new terrain. So as always, it's sort of an open question about exactly how many people are affected. uh, But certainly, there are going to be cases that wind up getting overturned as a result of this ruling. And then the question, as we were discussing, is whether they do wind up getting retried in federal court or what.
0: So does McGirt get released now, or do they, does it have to go back to a lower court?
1: So the question is going to wind up, uh, going back, and there'll be a question of whether he winds up getting retried on the, the federal level. I don't think it's going to be a, a situation of him just getting released out onto the street. And even if he even if he did, the federal government may well be able to pick him up right there. That's something that does happen sometimes when there's transfer between jurisdictions. So as McGirt himself, even though he won the case, he very may, he very uh, may well wind up still spending the rest of his life in prison anyway.
0: And Chief Justice John Roberts, very busy today, wrote the dissent. What was his dissent about?
1: His dissent mirrored the state's concerns in a lot of ways, worrying about the consequences of the decision, saying that the majority really gave it short shrift and wasn't taking the state's concerns seriously enough. And as to the, the legal question, Roberts also agreed with the state that the government's actions that it was taken against the reservation and the Creek Nation really amounted to the Creek Reservation not legally existing anymore. So the dissent and the majority really both disagreed as to the, the legal question and as to the consequences claims as well.
0: You now I wanted to ask a fact question because I've read that this means that nearly half of Oklahoma, eastern half, is reservation land. What is it now? I mean, do the reservations constitute that part of the land?
1: So a little bit of background explanation is necessary to explain that. So the Creek Nation, which was the land that was at issue in this case, is one of the five tribes that were marched west on the Trail of Tears back in the 1830s. And so the Creek, as well as four other tribes, which had similar arrangements, all had treaties with the government and they wound up in the eastern part of the state. And so the government's argument here, the government was concerned that a win for the Creek would then lead to similar findings as to those other tribes as well, saying that their reservations also still exist. So it's sort of a a two-step process. As for now, it's technically, uh, after this decision, only the Creek reservation, which has still been affirmed by the court as still being quote unquote, Indian land. As to the other half, uh, as to the remaining four of those tribes, certainly the logic of that may well apply to that case. But as a, a technical matter, there could still potentially be further litigation or legislation or further disputes as to the exact status of those lands. But certainly the implication of it is essentially that the eastern half of Oklahoma would be technically still a reservation if that same logic from today's opinion is applied to the rest of the tribes as well as it was applied to the creek.
0: Did the justices make a decision in the other case, criminal case, Sharp v. Murphy?
1: So last term, the justices tried to decide this case, uh, but it was a case where Justice Gorsuch was recused because because it came from the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, where he sat before reaching the Supreme Court. So he recused himself from that one, and the court wound up deadlocking presumably four to four on the case because they couldn't reach a decision. And so that case was on hold while the Jim C. McGirt case was playing out. And so now, uh, as happens often when there's a Supreme Court ruling and other decisions are sort of on hold, now that McGirt won, the Supreme Court issued essentially a summary decision saying that Murphy wins too and sent his case back as well. In that case, Murphy had actually won uh, prior, so it was just affirming the previous ruling for him as opposed to this case where McGirt lost at the previous court and today's decision wound up reversing in favor of McGirt.
0: So now let's broaden the discussion and talk a little bit about the chief because we learned that the chief actually had a fall and he was hospitalized overnight on Father's Day, I believe it was.
1: That's right. We wound up learning this week uh, that Chief Justice Roberts did fall and did stay in the hospital overnight on Father's Day. Uh, But it's something that the court did not wind up announcing and only really wound up confirming in response to a media inquiry from the Washington Post this week. And so this was something that was not told to us at the time and only really came out because someone was poking around and got a tip about it and asked the court about it. He's
0: had two prior seizures that if there's never been a clear diagnosis of, I don't think. But uh, That's right,
1: two that we know of anyway. And um, technically doctors have said that they don't know the exact uh, cause of them. And really what this shows is that uh, not just the chiefs, but a lot of the court's members don't necessarily readily share their health information. And it does turn into somewhat of a transparency issue. Obviously, the public is well aware of Justice Ginsburg's serial battles against cancer, but that's really because Justice Ginsburg herself has been forthcoming about that information. And so it does seem like the justices are dealing with this on an individual basis, and there's not necessarily a policy at the court of how each justice has to deal with disclosing their health information to the public, no matter how serious it is.
0: Chief Justice Roberts is fond of saying that the court is the most transparent Of all the branches of government.
1: That's right. A a lot we don't know. Exactly. So when it comes to something like the justices Uh, health information, uh, that might not be the case in terms of the court being the most transparent, at least as this recent incident shows with Chief Justice Roberts, which if no one had ever inquired from the court, perhaps we we never would have known about it. And so I should probably point out that there doesn't seem to be any lingering health issue that we know of. Obviously, it doesn't seem to be on par with Justice Ginsburg's very serious cancer issues, which seem to have resolved as well, but it's more a matter of the public being kept in the dark about this information.
0: That's Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Legal Editor. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.